Before we actually start Psalm 73, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that God is good? In the church that I grew up in, we had a little saying. I would, our pastor would say, God is good, and everybody would respond all the time, right? Is that here? I'm worried, because last time I tried to do, it fell flat, remember? So we, he would say, God is good. All, and then he would say, all the time, and they would say, God is good. You want to try it? I kind of feel like I'll be like my old pastor. God is good. All the time. Yeah. Do you really believe it? I remember the first time that I really had to wrestle with it. See, I grew up in a Christian home, and I became a Christian at a pretty early age, but it wasn't until I got to Virginia Tech that I really started getting excited about the Bible, and just excited about my faith in general. And when I got excited about Christ in college, something changed me, and one of those things was I started to love to read. And so I was working at Norfolk Southern Railroad at the time as a little internship, and so I would, on my lunch break, there was one little diner that was right down the street, and I would walk down to it every single day for my lunch break, and I would pull into a corner booth, and I'd pull out my book, whatever book I was reading, and I would sit there for my whole hour and just devour book after book after book. After a while, people were like, well, this guy's antisocial. And so people were trying to make relationships with me. And this guy from my floor in the Norfolk Southern Building decides to ride the elevator with me and just trying to get to know me. And so we're riding from the 10th floor down, and he asked me what I'm reading. And so I pull out my book, and I'm super excited because I was reading a book called Through Gates of Splendor at the time. It was one of my favorite books, one of the most profound, exciting books I've ever read. And it was a biography about a missionary named Jim Elliott. And so I thought, great, I'll tell him all about Jim Elliott. And I start telling him, Jim Elliott was this missionary who, when in college, radically decides, I want to follow Christ and be a missionary. And he decides to give up all of this promising career ahead of him, all of these things that seemed like this was his normal path. And he says, I'm giving it all up to go to Ecuador to be a missionary to the tribal people who have never heard the gospel before. Everyone thought, he's crazy, he's crazy, why would he do this? He was going to, seem like he was going to be this track star and had all the business sense. It seemed like, why in the world would he do this? But he says, I'm following God, I'm going to be a missionary. And he gets there, and for a little while he starts learning the language, but it's time to go out to the Aka Indians. And so the Aka Indians have never had a missionary Never seen a white person before in their lives. And so he knows these are a savage people. I can't just go in. So he spends months dropping gifts from an airplane so that these people can know he's a friendly person. And after, I think it was a little over a month, dropping gifts and dropping gifts, they decide to land the airplane on the beach. And they're going to let the Aka Indians come to them. And so at first... Everything seems to be going well. The Aka Indians come up to them, and they're exchanging, they're talking, they're trying to communicate to each other. But when nighttime comes, the people who were listening to the, air, the airplane's radio, they don't hear anything from them anymore. So the next day, they're trying to get in touch with them. They can't. About a week later, they find Jim Elliott and these five men that were with him had been savagely murdered, stabbed, left in the river, and their bodies have become bloated and distorted and flowed down. And it seems to be this tragic situation. 
Now, I would have gone on and tell him that eventually God saves this entire tribe, but he stopped me right there. And he says, that's exactly why I don't believe in God. And I said, like, what? Because it totally caught me off guard. My hero was exactly why he didn't believe in God. And he said, look, if God was real, don't you think he would bless the people who loved him most? Because if God was real, why would a missionary be killed? It seems like God would bless the people he loves most. If God was good, the people who loved him wouldn't suffer. I really just started my walk with God, and I felt like I just got kicked in the stomach. What do you say to that? What I had never done at that time when I talked to him is I had never read Psalm 73. Had I read Psalm 73, I would have told him, Asaph, the writer of this psalm, dealt with the exact same question that you're asking right now. Asaph, he wrestles with the problem of evil, and for Asaph, it drives him all the way to the point of depression. But at one point in the middle of Psalm 73, Asaph meets God, and it changes everything for him. What we learn in Psalm 73 is that while it's true that blessings follow obedience, it's not always the blessings we expect. But what Asaph tells us it's, it's better, it's the blessings that follow obedience are better than any blessing you could possibly imagine. Let me read the passage for us and then we'll pray and dive into it. Asaph says, This is a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as, of, as are of a clean heart. It says, but as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped, for I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He says, for there's no bands in their death, and their strength is firm. They're not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride compasseth them as about, a, about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than their heart could wish. They're corrupt, and they speak wickedly concerning oppression, and they speak lawfully, and they set their mouths against heaven, and their tongue walketh throughout all the earth. Therefore, his people return hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Then Asaph starts thinking, he says, Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain. I've washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say, I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. But when I thought to know this, it was, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I understood therein. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou casted them down into destruction. How they are brought into destruction, as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awaketh. So, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by thy right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterwards receive me to glory. 
Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none on earth that I desire besides thee. My flesh and my, my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go whoring from thee, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God, that I may declare all thy works. Let's pray. Dear Lord, teach us to understand your goodness, to trust deeply that no matter what the circumstances that are before us, that we can know for sure that you are good and cause our confidence in your goodness to completely transform the way we live our lives. Open your word to us today. Help us to fall more in love with you. In your name I pray, amen. Before we dive into the passage, let me talk to you a little bit about the way this passage is structured. It might help us to think about it. I kind of think about Psalm 73 as this big upside-down triangle. And on the very first verse is your top bar of the triangle. And he says, this is the thesis statement. This is the central idea that the whole rest of the psalm is built on. And that is, truly, God is good. God is good to those who are pure in heart. The whole psalm is based on whether or not this is true. But in the second, starting in verse 2 all the way through 16, you're going to see the downward part of this upside down triangle. And Asaph is going to go farther and farther and farther away from this idea. Until at the end, he's going to say, I'm considering walking away from God altogether because there's no way that God can be good. And then when you get to the very bottom, at his lowest point, right in verse 17, he's going to say, but then I met God. And the triangle, it changes. He starts going up and up and up until not only is God good, but God is the only good in his life. So let's walk through and see how he he works through this idea that God is truly good. I should have opened my, my Bible there when I, I asked y'all to do it. As we go through this, I'm gonna, I read to you from the King James translation the first time through. I'm going to read through a, a different translation. This will be the Holman Christian Standard. I, the reason I'm going to do this is, one, is I believe that whenever we study the Bible, it's helpful to use as many translations as possible. But there's a second reason, and it's just because some of the language is a little bit easier for me to understand in this passage. And I think it'll help us pr- go through this with a little bit more speed and understand it with a little better clarity. So we're going we're gonna to go through this, and I'm going to read to you again Psalm 73, verse 1. And I just want to look at what he says about God. He says, God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. And there's just a couple things I want to point out. One is he's saying that God is good, but the question is, Is there any benefit, is there any goodness that comes from following God? Is it really true that those who follow him, those who are pure in heart, see God's goodness? And starting in verse 2, what we're going to see is he says, I don't know if I believe that. He says, my feet almost slipped. In other words, he's almost ready to give up believing that God is good at all. 
He's sliding away from God. He's telling us that the reason he's starting to slide away from God is because he's looking at all these wicked people, and he's thinking, their life seems better than my life. This morning, if you were here this morning, Pastor Johnny talked about contentment, right? What we see with Asaph, particularly in verses 3 through 9, is that when he starts to compare himself to the people of the world, he becomes deeply discontented. He looks at the wicked people, and he looks at their life, and he says, their life is better than my life. In verse 3, he says, I'm envious of them. Let me read to you. We'll read 3 through 9 again. He says, for I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have an easy time until they die, and their bodies are well fed. They're not in trouble like others, and they're not afflicted like most people. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge out from fatness, and their imaginations of their heart run wild. They mock, and they speak maliciously. They arrogantly threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven, and their tongues strut across the earth. In other words, these wicked people aren't suffering. Verse 7 is kind of interesting. He says, their eyes bulge out from fatness and their imaginations of their heart run wild. And it's almost like he's saying, on one hand, these people are disgusting. But on the other hand, I'm jealous. It's like he's looking in on this spring break vacation. And he's like, I know this is gross. And I kind of wish I was there. Is weird, but he's jealous. And the reason is because there seems to be no consequence for, do, for running wild. There's no consequence. In fact, not only is there no consequence, they eat so much that their eyes are about to pop out of their head. They're, more, they're better fed than anyone else he knows. Why in the world would a loving God allow that? When you live in a world where wicked people prosper, what do you think happens? What Asaph says is everybody wants to be wicked. Everybody looks at these people and says, I'm going to do exactly what they do. And that's what he says in verses 10 through 12. Look at it. He says, therefore, his people turn to them, and they drink their overflowing words. The wicked say, how can God know? Does the Most High know anything? Look at them, the wicked. They're always at ease. They always increase their wealth. In other words, when the average person looks at a wicked person and his success, he thinks, God doesn't know what he's talking about. God's just this big cosmic killjoy. He just doesn't want me to have fun. But he doesn't know what he's talking about because the wicked go out and they prosper. I remember, well, I thought about today especially, when was the kind of the first time I started kind of feeling these same thoughts. And my mind ran back to middle school. I, start, I joined a new school when I was in fifth grade. And so when I started fifth grade, I didn't have any friends. Sixth grade, I was really, I felt like probably the biggest dork in the whole school, picked on all the time. And when I got to seventh grade, I said, this is not happening anymore. And so I've been watching. I mean, I watched the cool crowd like a hawk, and I said, I'm going to become part of that crowd. And I knew the reason the cool people are cool is because they pick on the not cool people, right? The cool people get their coolness by finding somebody like me 
and making themselves cool at my expense. So I said, that's what I'm doing. And since I was already in the not cool crowd, I just had to find one of my friends and turn on them. And that's what I did. Seventh grade, I turned on one of my friends. I mean, I remember it so vividly. And I felt guilty, but I also said, I'm, I'm not going through this again. I'm going to be cool. So I found this guy, and I started making fun of him in the hall. And he's, you used to be my friend. What are you doing? Everybody's laughing at me. And so I'm starting to feel way cooler because all of a sudden, cool people are laughing with me. And I'm kind of, I kind of even start pushing the guy around. And I feel guilty, but that day changed everything in my life. I became part of the cool crowd. Isn't that strange? It actually happened the same way that Asaph is saying, that the wicked prospered. And when I, in seventh grade, decided that I was going to be wicked, all of a sudden I felt like, hey, I'm cool. And all the cool people like me. Do you know what that does to Asaph, though? In the next section, starting in verse 13, he gets really depressed. And he thinks... I don't want to live in a world that's like middle school for the rest of my life. I don't want to live in a world where there's no punishment for evil. I don't want to live in a world where a seventh grader turns on his best friend and that makes him prosperous and successful. And for Asaph, it gets dark. He says in verse 13, when he's depressed and he starts saying, did I purify my heart and wash my hands for nothing? In other words, is following God just a giant waste of my time? The more he thinks about it, the more depressed he starts getting. In verse 14, he says, for I'm afflicted all day long and I'm punished every morning. And then in verse 16, he says, and when I tried to understand all of this, it just seemed hopeless. Asaph lived in the same world that you and I live in. A world where, in all honesty, evil people do not always seem to be punished for their evil. In fact, often it seems like they're wicked people. I mean, that they're, they're benefiting from their wickedness. Some of you might actually work at a job where you have a boss and you think, this guy's a jerk. Absolute jerk. As hard as I try to find something good about him, it's hard. I mean, I can't. He's lazy and rude, demanding. And how in the world did this guy get authority in this company? He makes more money than me. He has more authority, authority than me. I don't want to live in a world where the wicked people prosper. Asaph thought, if that's the way the world is, maybe I should just walk away. Walk away from God. If God will allow the wicked to prosper, maybe he's not good. And maybe he's not worth following. And so at the end of 16, we're thinking, this is, this is depressing. I mean, I'm feeling... Asaph's depression with him. I don't want to live, I don't ever want to go back to middle school. And he says, your whole world is like middle school until verse 17, something amazing happens. In verse 17, Asaph meets God. 
Right? He says, and then I stepped into your sanctuary. Right? And obviously this is metaphorical. Asaph, it's not that Asaph changes location, that he goes from one building to another building. What's happening is he's saying, I stepped in front of the presence of God that I met God this day, and my entire world changed. Everything looks different when you look at the world through God's eyes. When he meets God, he says, there's just no doubt in my mind God's good. And you see three things that change in Asaph's perspective, three different ways he looks at the world once he realizes certainly God's good. And the first change we see is that because God is good, Asaph knows God must judge wickedness. Look at what he says in 17 through 20. He said, then I understood their destiny. Indeed, you put them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end, swept away by terrors, like one waking from a dream. Lord, when arising, you will despise their image. In other words, now that Asaph has met God, he says, I know that God is good. And because God is good, he has to judge all wickedness. Asaph is starting to understand that Paul says this in Galatians, God will not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, a man will also reap. We planted plants in our garden this spring, and we didn't immediately pick the vegetables off those plants. But in time, those plants, those vegetables came. God's saying the same thing. Whatever you plant, whatever you sow, you're going to reap in God's time. And once Asaph realized God is surely good, he said God will surely judge all wickedness. It's, it's sure. It's a sure thing. That was his first major perspective change. The second thing that Asaph learns is that because God is good, he gives us an opportunity, an opportunity to repent from our wickedness. I'm going to read to you from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. It says, Dear friends, don't let this one thing escape you. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but he's patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. I think that what's happening is once Asaph sees that God is good, he knows that God's going to judge all wickedness, but he also knows that because God's good, he doesn't want anyone to perish. He'll give everyone the opportunity to repent. Another interesting thing happens to him is that once he realizes that, his focus starts to shift. He's not so much concerned with the wickedness of these other people anymore. Now, all of a sudden, God's goodness is calling him to repent. Look at what he says in verses 21 and 22. When I became embittered and my innermost being was wounded, I was stupid. I didn't understand. I was like an unthinking animal towards you. Asaph is saying that his despair and his doubt in the goodness of God was wrong. It was a sin for him to doubt the goodness of God, and he's confessing it, and he's repenting. 
A couple years ago, in our youth group at North Wake, I taught the same passage uh, to our middle school and high school kids. And afterwards, one of the leaders came up to me, and she was uh, a mom. She was about my age, but she had already had two kids, and she had one kid before those two that had died really young. I think the kid was less than a month when it died. And obviously, when that happened, she was, it hurt. It hurt deep inside. And so she went to a pastor for counseling. And she said, Pastor, I'm angry. Why did God take my son? And this pastor said, it's okay to be angry. It's okay for you to be angry with God. It's completely natural. I want to point out that even if her emotions were natural, they weren't right, and they're not justified. It's never okay for us to be angry or embittered toward God. It's a sign that something is wrong with our heart. Do you remember the missionary I told you about earlier, Jim Elliott? His wife is the one who wrote his biography. After he died, people would come up to her and say, aren't you angry that God took your husband? Or some people would have said, certainly God has done something that made you think, well, it was worth it. What did God do for you to justify him taking your husband? And this is, listen to what she says. She said, God is God. I dethrone him in my heart if I demand that he act in ways that satisfy my idea of justice. It's the same spirit that taunted, if thou be the son of God, come down from the cross. She said, there's unbelief. There's even rebellion in the attitude that says, God has no right to do this. When we allow ourselves to be angry or embittered with God, in effect, we're saying, God didn't live up to my standard of goodness. We're saying that if God was truly good, he couldn't have let this happen. In another, in, in another way of saying this, to, de, to be angry with God is to deny the first verse of this psalm. To be angry with God is to say, no, God's not truly good to those who are pure in heart. Asaph was bitter toward God. That may have been natural, but it wasn't right. And so he said to God, I was wrong to assume that I knew more about goodness than you. I may not understand everything that's going on right now, but you are the ultimate standard of goodness. Whatever you ordain is right. He repents. He says, I'm sorry for not completely and fully trusting that you are good all the time. Before we move to Asaph's third major change, I want to take a quick second to review. Once Asaph realizes that God's good, the first thing he says is that God's definitely going to judge evil. Part of being good means that he can't tolerate wickedness. That's what it means to be good. And in one sense, that's good news to Asaph. But in another sense, that's bad news. Because he realized God isn't pretty good. God is perfectly good. And if he's perfectly good, it's not that he can't tolerate really bad wickedness. He can't tolerate any. 
And so Asaph's response is, I'm wicked. I've doubted your goodness. And he repents. There's some good news that follows this idea of God's goodness. And that's if he gives us a chance to repent, that he's going to redeem us as well. Let me read to you Romans 5, 6 through 8. It says, For while we were still helpless, at the appropriate moment, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his love, or because God proved his goodness for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So is God good? Definitely God's good. How do you know God's good? Because he proved it. He proved it by dying on the cross for you and for me, though we didn't deserve it. We deserve to die, but he died in our place. Greater love has no man than this, and greater goodness has no man than this. God is the ultimate good. There's one more change in Asaph, and I think this last change is the most exciting of all of them. Let me back up, and I'll try to give you some context of why I think it's so exciting. Remember that Asaph, when he starts doubting God's goodness, he considers walking away from God. And his logic is that if people denying God and people living in wickedness seem to be happy, and it seems that they, he said they do seem to be happy, it seems like they found the best life to offer, so I ought to follow in their footsteps. Because that's, if that's what makes them happy, that's where I'll find my happiness too. And so the first thing we've already saw is that he learned that's a mirage. Right? They might have temporary, momentary happiness, but not eternal happiness. So he sees that's a mirage. Here today and gone tomorrow. So in other words, Asaph learns, I'm not going to walk away from God because the consequences are too severe. I'll, I'll be punished for, these, for the wickedness. But in verses 23 through 28, there's a, there's a new twist on this. What happens is he learns that it's not simply that God is good, but he learns that God is the good. He learns that we follow God not merely to avoid the punishment that comes to the wicked, but to get the good that comes from God. It says the greatest good we'll ever get, the happiest we will ever be, is when we know God. Let me just read to you verses 23 through 28. Listen to how he says it. He says, yet I'm always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will take me up into glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? On earth, there's nothing I desire, I desire but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, so I can tell about all you do. Once Asaph meets God, there is no one in heaven and nothing on earth that he desires but God. Once he meets God, God is his portion. God is the only thing that will satisfy him. He concludes, as for me, God's presence is my good. Do you see the switch that's happened here? 
He was so heartbroken because he couldn't have the things that the wicked people had. And now he thinks, I'd be happy to give, get rid of all of that for the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Right? That's the point, by the way, of Matthew, Jesus' parable in Matthew 13. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field that a man found, and he hid it again, and with the joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. In other words, knowing Jesus is so valuable that you would give up everything and be thrilled to do it for the chance of knowing Jesus Christ your Lord. That's how valuable the blessing of knowing God is. Paul says it another way. This is Philippians 3, 8 through 11. He says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. In other words, Paul says, I'd be happy to lose everything that you think is good if it meant that I could get the greatest good. The good news of the gospel is not merely that you can escape eternal separation from God, but that you can get eternal presence with God. That's what makes us so happy. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm thankful that I don't have to pay my own death penalty, but the exciting part of the gospel is I can know God. I think this is one of the reasons we have to be careful when we're watching a lot of the preachers that you see on TV. Because at first it sounds like they say things similar to us. A lot of TV preachers will say something that sounds like, blessings follow obedience, which is absolutely true. But as you start listening to them, the major blessings they're looking for, the best life that they have to offer, are things like newer cars, bigger houses, better relationships, earlier retirement, more promotions. Paul says, that's rubbish compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I'm not saying that these things aren't good. They're like little baby goods compared to the ultimate giant good of knowing God. I'd give up every tiny little baby good compared to the ultimate joy of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. We have to be careful of falling falling in love with the little goods that God gives us instead of the God who gives us those goods. Once Asaph meets God, he realizes that nothing else will satisfy him. He says, who do I have in heaven but you? On earth, there is nothing I desire but you. My flesh and my heart, they might fail but God is my strength and my portion forever. 
And then 28, he says, but as for me, God's presence is my good. In just a minute, I'm going to close. Pastor Johnny will come up and lead us in a time of response. But I want to help us prepare for that time by thinking, how should we respond to this message? More particularly, how should we respond to Asaph's message to us? For time's sake, I want to keep it short and and just bring out two possible ways that you may need to respond. And the first thing is to say, just as Asaph realized, because God is good, God will judge all evil. So every one of us in this room need to take serious our responsibility and our need to repent. You may be the type of person that Asaph looked at and said, he does whatever he wants, whenever he wants. You, may, you know yourself, you may be the type of wicked person that Asaph says, this is the pinnacle of wickedness. If so, you need to repent. But you may be a person that's more like Asaph, who thinks, all those people are wicked. But me, I should be blessed a whole lot more. Why does God overlook me? Why doesn't God reward me for all the good things I've done? Doesn't God understand how good I am? Maybe God doesn't understand goodness as much as me. That might be you in this room. And if that is, you have to repent from that. God is better than you. You can't raise yourself up in arrogance to say, God, don't you know how good I am? But if you repent, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse you your sins, to forgive you your sins, and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. God's good. I think there's a second application for us to consider. That's that Asaph's discontentment came because he loved the little gifts more than the big gift giver. Right? The reason that Asaph couldn't find his happiness is because he thought, I don't have enough of these little trinkets of goodness. And he had totally missed that the awesome goodness of God was right there for him to have. I once heard John Piper ask a question that caused me to investigate my own life and say, what's, what's my greatest good? So I want to read that question to you. Piper asked, Would you be satisfied to go to heaven and to have everybody there in your family that you want there, to have all the health and restoration of your prime, and to have everything you disliked about yourself fixed? You have every recreation you've ever dreamed of available to you, and you have infinite resources and infinite money to spend. Would you be satisfied if God wasn't there? What's my greatest love? Tonight, as we respond, I'm going to be praying that God will make himself my all. That I'm going to be like Asaph and say, as for me, God's presence is my good. That he'll show himself to me in such a way that I'll say, who do I have in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire but you. My flesh and my heart might fail but God is my strength and my portion forever. Let's pray.
Dear Lord, we confess that we are too easily satisfied with things that should never satisfy us. We pray that you will forgive us of our idolatry, and we pray that you will open our eyes to see the greatest good that's ever been offered, and that's a relationship and intimacy and knowledge of you. Give us such a hunger and such a longing that we'll never be satisfied until we can say, God's presence is my good.